So there's a man named Junius Stryker. Uh, Mr. Stryker was a highly decorated soldier in Germany in World War I, receiving several citations for bravery. After the war, he became a raging anti-Semite, became one of the founding members of the Nazi party and a friend of Adolf Hitler. He started a magazine called The Strike, or The Striker, Der Strumer. It was a horrific magazine that accused Jewish people of doing things that were unspeakable and all untrue. But because of that, he, he, gave, he had some street cred with the Nazis and, and rose in the ranks, a good friend of Hitler's. I said, he was so virulent in his anti-Semitism, though, that several Nazi leaders came to Hitler and said, we've got to distance ourselves from, from Mr. Stryker. He is a bad news for us. And so Hitler asked him to basically leave leadership, but he continued with his magazine called Der Strumer which incited the German people, many of them, to hate the Jews. In the aftermath of World War II, he was arrested by the Allies and he was taken to Nuremberg to stand trial for crimes against humanity. And he was convicted. And on October of 1946, a year and a half after Hitler had committed suicide, a year and a half after Germany had surrendered, Junius Stryker was marched to the gallows and he stopped at the steps of the gallows where he was to be executed, he clicked his heel and raised his hand and said, Heil Hitler. And then he went up the steps and he said something like this, one day the Bolsheviks will hang all of you. And he was executed. Now, not to be injudicious, but only a blithering fool who was a person of incredible folly would let their dying words be a tribute to a maniac who had been discredited and who had died, a man who was universally hated. Only a fool would do that. So we look at the first century church, and we look at the martyrs for the faith in the first century, many of whom were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. And these men and women went to their death saying, Jesus Christ is Lord, for he has risen from the dead. In the book of Acts, the first martyr is a man named Stephen, and he gives an overview of Jewish history and the coming in of the Messiah, whose name is Jesus. And he said to those who were accusing him, look, I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, thus saying that Christ was equal with God. And these Jews covered their ears, their hands, and screamed. They took him outside of the city, and they stoned him to death. And as he was dying, he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Acts chapter 12, James is put to death by Herod. In the book of 2 Timothy, the last book of the Apostle Paul, this man who formerly persecuted the church and hounded believers, says in chapter 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And then he says in chapter 4, as he's bringing the book to a close, I fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I've kept the faith. In the future, there is later for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me and to all of those who have longed for his appearing. Remember, he says, Christ risen from the dead. So, what happened? What made these marginal people bold as lions? Yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, it's an excellent article on 
the Easter effect by first-rate thinker named George Weigel, who's written a wonderful book called The Cube and the Cathedral. It's very readable. But in the first page of the book review section, this is what he writes in part. How did a ragtag band of nobodies become such a dominant force? A gaggle of nobodies in the first century A.D., what happened to them? What happened to them was the Easter effect, he says, the reality of the Easter effect. There is no accounting for the rise of Christianity without weighing the revolutionary effect on those nobodies of what they called the resurrection, their encounter with the one whom they embraced as the risen Lord, whom they first knew as an itinerant Jewish teacher, a rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, and who died an agonizing and shameful death on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar in our own day and age, said the following. He says, the first century, the first generation answered the question of why they were Christians with this answer, because Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, this is Easter, and it's somewhat difficult to preach on Easter because you know what I'm going to say before I say it. But I want to rehearse this resurrection with you and talk about what keeps us from believing in part and to bring some application to that. So first of all, the, the, the resurrection of Christ authenticates the message of Jesus. It authenticates everything that he did. Without the resurrection, there is nothing to believe in. In John chapter 2, Jesus says the following. So the Jews said to him, verse 18, What sign will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, Herod's temple. And you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Then in Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 38, said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. The Apostle Peter, in his first epistle, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see? Through the resurrection of Jesus. To give us a hope that is imperishable, undefiled, and it will not fade away reserved in heaven for us. The centrality of the resurrection. In the book of Romans, Paul says that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The centrality of the resurrection. And then the supreme passage, if you will. 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul says, this gospel saves you. 
He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received from Christ, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised up on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers. 500. Most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and so is your faith. And if in Christ, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so in this passage, the Apostle Paul says, look, the, the resurrection is essential. It authenticates the reality of Christ. He says, if, if Christ be not risen, then, then our preaching, our message, our, our communication is a fatuous gas of nothingness. It's just nothing. It has no binding authority. It's just wish fulfillment. There's no reality to it. He says, if, if Christ be not risen from the dead... Your faith is in vain and you are still in your sins because we believe that, that you're reconciled to the living God by the cross of Christ because on the cross he died for the sins of those who call him Savior and Lord. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Therefore, if Christ be not risen from the dead, he is not Lord. He's a liar and you're still in your sins. He says, if Christ be not risen, then we are to be pitied more than all people because we're believing a lie. We might as well be standing at the steps of the gallows with Julius Stryker saying, Heil Hitler. Because the body of Jesus at that time was decaying in the Judean hillside if he is not risen from the dead. It's true today. If Christ be not risen, our preaching is useless, our faith is vain, and we are to be pitied. Now in the 19th century, there was a man named Schleimacher from Germany. Schleimacher made this statement. He said, um, he was very respected, but he said this. He said, it really makes no difference if Jesus is risen from the dead. What really counts is that you've experienced the Jesus reality in your hearts. Now, I've got to tell you that I think the apostles would look at him and say, what blather, what nonsense, what balderdash. The reality of Christ is tied to his bodily resurrection out of the dead. And see, if Christ be not risen, then these people in Egypt have believed in vain. This is a picture of a funeral service a few weeks ago. Somebody went into a church and a Muslim militant and machine gunned 11 people to death, beat them, shot them to death. And this is a, one of the funerals of a child after a small coffin with a cross on it. They, they believed in vain. They've died in vain. Or, or these men from two years ago, this story that just captured our attention, 21 men on the beaches of northern Africa who were put to death by ISIS because they would not renounce Jesus. Their lives have counted for nothing. But if Christ be risen, it's a glory. So I'm going to ask this question. Why is it hard to believe in God today? Now, I get this from a paper by a man named John Frame, who's a professor of theology at Reformed Seminary, formerly Westminster Seminary, 
And um, so I'm going to borrow some thoughts from him. But why is it hard to believe in God today? The answer is very clear. We have been raised in an environment, the, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the, the, every, to believe in, in man as an autonomous being who calls the shots. And in other words, no one can tell us what to believe. We stand with our fist raised and we say, I am the arbiter of truth. I'm the ultimate referee. I'm the one who determines what is right and wrong. Now, we've been raised with that self-actualization, self-love, self-improvement, self-magazine, whatever. It's, it's all about me. So if that's, the, if that's the air we breathe, and if that's the way you live, you will never bow your knee to Jesus. You just won't. You, you, you'll, you, you'll have the raised fist, and that's really post-modernity, the child of modernity, which is the child of the Enlightenment, which is the child of the Renaissance, which is the child of the Greco-Roman mindset. <clears throat> the First Corinthians 1 addresses where Paul says, Greeks look for wisdom, but we just preach Christ and Him crucified. So, so there are people here today, and, and really in their heart of hearts, <clears throat> they call the shots. It's me. Now, there was a movie several years ago that I really liked. It was entitled Invictus. It was about the 1996 um, World Rugby Championship in South Africa and how Nelson Mandela, a, a wonderful man who's recently become president of South Africa, used that to bring the nation together. It was a great movie. And it's named Invictus because that's one of Nelson Mandela's favorite poems that I'm going to take issue with today. So, so in case, and the movie starred my favorite actor, Morgan Freeman, who's just incredible. A great actor. So, so if you know Morgan Freeman, I'm not criticizing him or the movie. I'm criticizing the poem. Okay, so I like Morgan, don't like the poem. So Invictus is written by a man named William Ernest Henley. And it is the ultimate statement of shaking your fist in the face of God. William Ernest Henley uh, lived in the 1800s, uh, 1830 or so. He had uh, a sickness, and so in his mid-20s, they had to amputate his left leg. Interestingly, he was very good friends with a guy, and this is just an aside, very good friends with a guy named Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote Treasure Island. And in Treasure Island, there is a guy named Long John Silver with a peg leg. And that character was built on William Ernest Henley, just for fun. That's just, that has nothing to do with what I want to say, but yeah. So, so this is the point. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a poem of uh, autonomy. Out of the night that covers me black as a pit from pole to pole. I think whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstances, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, if, if you dig down, a lot of this poem is a swipe at and a denial of the revealed faith that's found in the scripture. He says, you know, under the, 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 the bludgeonings of chance. 
He talks about beyond this place of wrath and tears looms above the heart of the shade. No, there's nothing beyond death, he says. And then he says, it matters not how straight the gate. See, in the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, narrow is the gate that leads to life and only a few find it, but broad is the way that leads to destruction and many find it. He mocks that. He says, it matters not how straight the gate. It matters not how charged with punishment the scroll. Revelation 21 teaches us that we will give an account for our days before the living God. He says, forget that. There's no judgment. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is the air we breathe. This is the water we drink. And if that's our spirit, we will never understand the glory of the gospel because the risen Christ is Lord and King, and we bow the knee to him. I think of Matthew 11 that says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, this is an appeal for people who come to Christ for the very first time, or if you've walked with the Lord for 30 or 40 or 50 years. Weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. How, how do you get rest? Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me. For I am humble and gentle of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So how, how do you find rest? You bow your knee to the risen Savior. You, you follow him. As long as you're doing this, and some of us are doing that, and no one knows it. We'll never know the glory of Jesus the way we should. So that's why I, I think, you know, if, you, if you're out and you meet an optimistic, forward-thinking, positive 85-year-old, get their autograph. Make a selfie. Now, there are many 85-year-olds in this church who are positive and gracious. More about that later. But, but, but the reason there aren't many positive 85-year-olds, life beats the stew out of you. It beats you down. Disease, death, destruction. Your body falls apart. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. That's life. The young people here and in the worship center going, yeah, it is. It's like the man who's 90 years old and still driving. He went out on an errand for his wife. and She's sitting at home. She's watching TV and they break in. They say, this is a special announcement. There is a, a, a car on the interstate going the wrong way and it's creating incredible confusion. Avoid the interstate. And so she realizes that's where my husband is supposed to be. And she calls him and she says, sweetheart, be careful. Somebody is going the wrong way in the interstate. He says, somebody? There are hundreds of people going the wrong way, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, that, 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 that happens, you know? See, I call the shots. I'm the referee. I'm the arbiter versus the Bible says repent and believe. Repent means lament and leave and believe the good news. So, so also, the resurrection not only authenticates Christ, but also it gives us hope. In the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, this is so profound. It says this, when the perishable, our bodies, that wear out, puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. 
at the coming of the Lord. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? See, we die, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope, the Bible says. Because ultimately, death is swallowed up in victory and the grave loses its sting ultimately because there's hope. See, the, the gospel gives us hope. Uh, listen, everything has an expiration date. Everything. Um, your body has an expiration date. The toys you love has an expiration date. Things break down. But for years, I didn't understand expiration dates because we were raising a son who ate everything. And uh, my wife said, get a gallon of milk coming home. And I just reached in and grabbed one because it was going to be gone by the next day. And, and now she says, get a gallon of milk coming home. And I'm, it's just she and I. So I'll, I'll push by and reach in the very back, you know, because that's their, their, that's their later expiration date and bring it home. Because there's nothing worse than milk that's gone bad. It has an expiration date. I met with a man the other day at four boys at home. How in the world do you feed them? You know, everything has an expiration date. Our bodies. Thursday, I was walking the halls, and a young woman was coming up the hall who buried her husband two weeks ago. A 44-year-old died unexpectedly. So kind, she stopped. We embraced, and she had tears. And I said, "Well, the silly question is, but I'm going to ask it. How are you doing?" She says, "We're okay." We're okay, but it's so hard. And I said, and this weekend is going to be really, really hard. She says, I know it. I know it. And, uh, and she, says this. she says, but you know what? We have hope beyond death. I said, amen. And then that night I saw a man walk in and with his daughter who buried his wife, 43 years old, about two months ago. First Easter without her. Last service, there's a woman sitting right back here with her two college children who buried her husband about four months ago. Dear man, dear family, 47, 48. And so, so th th these things are difficult. They're hard. But listen, we have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. We, we, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. That, that's what this is saying. And, and, and I want you to have that hope. So Friday night, I was sitting right there at the Good Friday service. It's a beautiful service, and um, I was thinking about this. I was putting together this in my mind, and how do you communicate this hope, and, and uh, resurrection bodies, and the hope of heaven, and all this really good stuff. And So I'm sitting right there, and we're singing uh, with the choir and orchestra, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. On which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. And I'm, I'm, as I'm sitting there singing this and rejoicing it, I look across the room, <clears throat> and he's sitting there now. There's a guy named Luke in our church. Luke just turned 19 about three weeks ago. He is good looking. He is always positive, always has a smile, so gracious. And he's dressed really good today, man. He looks strong. 
Luke also has cerebral palsy. His body's, he can't speak and he communicates on a pad. And he received an award about two years ago for being an incredibly gifted mathematician. And I sat there singing that hymn and looked across and I thought, thank God for Luke. And one day, resurrection bodies. One day. We have a special class in this church called the Friends Ministry of Children that are physically challenged or disabled, emotionally and mentally, have issues, and they're just lovely kids, some of my favorite kids. And I look at them, and some of them have this vacant stare, but one day, resurrection bodies. And if I didn't have that hope, I, I, I don't know, what do, you, what do you do? What do you do, church? Those of you who are older, what do you do when you get old and things fall apart and you see these things? When you're young, you still have this fatuous dream, and it's a fatuous dream. It's going to get better and better and better. It is not going to get better and better and better. We are not the Coastal Carolina Fair. It doesn't get better every year. It's, life is hard. And feel the joy. So you look at this and you go from darkness to light. The, the Bible talks about you were in darkness, but now that you're light. There there's a time, comes a time where you cross the line from unbelief to belief. Where you say, no longer, I don't call the shots. You bend the knee and say, Jesus, you call the shots. And if you're walking in the light, there, there's corresponding degrees of light. Even as you know the Lord, as you let the scripture have free range in your heart. And it changes you. And even as believers, we can say, no, I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to love my wife. I'm not going to honor my parents. I'm not going to do this. And, and you walk in darkness. There's a passage in Proverbs 4, one of my favorite verses, says that, 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 that the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that grows brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. In other words, the, the light of the righteous is like the, 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 the path of dawn. It goes brighter and brighter. As you walk with the Lord, there, there's more and more light. As you stay in the Word, there's more light. And it bathes your soul, and, and, and you get more and more in the light. That's what I want to do. But, but the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. When people shake their fists in the face of God, they go into darkness. And some of you are doing, you're going into dark. Don't go into darkness. I love football. And some of you know football so much better than I do. I, but but we, call, we have something called halftime adjustments. And, and if you're the first half, you have an offense that isn't moving the ball, then you get together at halftime and you, you make some adjustments. And you, make, you, you put the wideouts here and you throw the ball deeper. You, or if your defense is being destroyed, you, you make some halftime adjustments to stop their offense. And, and, and through the years, you've heard football analysts say that he is a great coach because he and his staff make halftime adjustments. Or you'll hear people say, not out loud, but he's not a very good coach. He never makes halftime adjustments. See, a lot of us are like the coach that never makes halftime adjustments. We're going the wrong way, but our theme is double down and try harder. That's not the way it works. See, the Bible calls us to adjustments. It calls us to the adjustment of faith, believing in Jesus, and bowing the knee. It calls us believers to continue to make adjustments and to walk deeper and deeper and more in the glorious light. Are you doing this? Or is your knee bowed? So I'll close with another story from the trials of Nuremberg. Julius Stryker cried out, Heil Hitler. 
But there were 21 men there. One of them was named Hans Frank. Hans Frank was Hitler's attorney. Hitler had a deep affection for him, and so when they conquered Poland in 1939, Hans Frank was made the governor general of the nation of Poland. And he was referred to as the butcher of Poland. Under his leadership, three million Poles were killed, many of them Jews. Hans Frank and his henchmen started in the Warsaw Ghetto, where hundreds of thousands of Jews were packed into the ghetto in a horrible, unsanitary, dehumanizing existence. After the war, Hans Frank fled, and he was apprehended by U.S. troops in Bavaria, and he was taken to Nuremberg to stand trial. And quite frankly, he was there for over a year, and as he was there, he went into a Bible study, and he started studying the Bible, and he started listening to these chaplains, two American chaplains, one Catholic, one Missouri Synod Lutheran. And somewhere along that pilgrimage, Hans Frank confessed his sins and placed his faith in Christ. And the chaplains were skeptical, but as they knew him, they saw a change. And Hans Frank said, I feel like a little child on Christmas Eve because I'm forgiven. And during the trial, the American Robert Jackson and the other judges couldn't find a link between Hans Frank and what happened in Poland. They, they knew it was there, but they couldn't find a link. And this was this, this amazing to me. So Hans Frank said, well, there's a chest in my home in Bavaria, upstairs. It has 46 journals in it that detailed what I did in Poland, handwritten commands that will link me to the genocide. So they went there, brought him out, no doubt about it. So he was convicted, and he was to be executed for crimes against humanity. So in October of 1946, Hans Frank left his cell with his chaplain by his side, praying with him. And he stepped to the base of the stairs where Julius Stryker said, Heil Hitler. And this is what Hans Frank said. Jesus, have mercy on me. I pray the Lord receive me mercifully. I am grateful for the good treatment I have received in prison. And he died. He didn't die doing this. He died with his knee bowed to the Savior. And then in this passage, Paul makes this incredible closing statement that, that said, based upon the resurrection of Jesus and the eternity that, that is before us, he says to this church, this minority church, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. Never in vain. Never in vain. You're made in the image of God. You're, you're claimed by the blood of Christ. And while you do counts for eternity, therefore we bend our knee to the Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the joy of Easter Sunday. And I, I pray, that, Lord, that we would bow the knee to you every day. I pray for those who are here that bow the knee to you for the first time. And for many of us uh, in the third or fourth or fifth decade of faith, we continue to do so. Have mercy upon us in Jesus' name.
Amen.